Hi, I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women and author of the Amazon bestseller, You're Not Broke, You're Pre-Rich. And this is The Wallet. The Wallet is here to help you make better financial decisions by talking honestly about money. I'll be sharing my best tips, inspiring you to take charge of your financial futures and talking to an array of awesome guests from all walks of life, employees, freelancers, entrepreneurs, and money experts. Since reopening after lockdown, the property market has been incredibly active with record house sales being reported in the UK. Rightmove claims that prices are now 5.5% higher than a year ago, the biggest rate of increase for over four years, and is now forecasting annual growth rate to peak at circa 7% by December. Thanks to government incentives such as the stamp duty holiday, it may look like an attractive time to move house or buy your first property. But what effect is the COVID-19 pandemic actually having on the property market? My guest today is Sarah Davidson, knowledge and product editor of This Is Money at The Mail Online and my go-to expert when it comes to mortgages and property. Together, we take a look at how the current conditions can affect buying your first property, the impact the pandemic is having on lenders and the mortgage market, and tips for how to best position yourself to buy a home. With many people finding themselves on furlough or losing their jobs due to the pandemic, Sarah also shares some valuable insights into the mortgage holidays available for homeowners and guidance for renters if you're struggling to pay your rent right now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I also wanted to let you know that we are not financial advisors. So the articles, the information made available on Vespot.com and in this podcast are provided just for educational purposes and do not constitute financial advice. So make sure you consult with an independent financial advisor for advice on your specific circumstances. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are you today? I am very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. It's good to see you. We can see each other via Zoom. Fortunately, you can't see us. <laughs> so how was how was lockdown for you and how is uh, lockdown number two? <laughs> lockdown number two. Well, the first one I did in Suffolk with my parents for about five months, which was a long time to have moved home. It's the first time I've lived at home with my mom and dad since I was 16, full time. So that was a bit of a of a change in a good way. Got looked after. My mum cooked meals every evening. It was lovely. But this lockdown, I am in Dorset, staying with my brother and his wife and their dog, who's called Florence, and who is keeping me very entertained in between (laughs) Zoom meetings and emails. (laughs) How about you? Yeah, no, I'm in London with the family. So with, with one little one at home, two kids still at school. So, you know, making the most of my of my short days. But, you know, thanks to Zoom and these platforms, we can still chat, which is still nice. And Sarah, I wanted to have you on the podcast this week because I want to talk about your favorite subject, mortgages and, and property. So you're the knowledge and product editor at This Is Money at The Mail Online. And you're definitely my go-to expert for this type of question. I've received so many comments about, you know, buying a property, the current conditions, but also like how to pay your rent if you're struggling at the moment. So I think there's lots of different problematics. So I think today, if you can give us, you know, a market update, 
how to position you uh, to buy your first property uh, and then just a few tips that would be really amazing absolutely I think in terms of the market, we've seen like, you know, record high sales since reopening after after the lockdown. There's also the stamp duty holiday the government has announced. So there's actually more and more people looking to buy properties and to move and, and this possibly as quick as possible. What's happening to the property market? It's been like I mean, super active. Yeah, it's completely crazy, to be honest. I don't think there's there's no one answer to that. So as you as you mentioned, in August, the the government was very late August, they announced that there would be a stamp duty holiday. They were basically anybody buying property for up to £500,000 would not have to pay any stamp duty, unless you're a landlord, that is, in which case you do get the exemption on the main part, but you still have to pay your 3% surcharge in stamp duty but still that's a big saving depending on how expensive the property is i think the most you can save is fifteen thousand pounds on a on a purchase transaction which is a lot of money if it's your first purchase you know and you know that money can go towards furnishing your home moving costs legal costs valuation costs everything like that so it i mean it was announced and designed to boost the housing market which had been on ice for three months during lockdown because nobody unless in very special circumstances was allowed to visit other people's homes we weren't allowed to move house unless it was absolutely necessary everything just stopped and now that's really just unheard of in the property market even when things are going badly and the result was that we had this kind of backlog of transactions that had started before lockdown that just kind of paused for three months. And then all of that business started opening up again when the government said, we can have valuers can go back into homes, estate agents can do viewings, as long as they observe social distancing. So we had all of that pent up activity that had just stopped, sort of crashed onto the market. And then at the same time, they announced the stamp duty holiday in a bid to sort of shore up confident and get people, you know, give them an incentive to get looking quickly. So there was an absolute boom in, in interest because people who had been thinking, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't, not sure if it's the right time, suddenly thought, well, you know, if we were going to do it in 12 months, we might as well do it in the next six and save some money. So that's kind of what's, I suppose, boosted the activity is it's been a frenzy, but there have been some kind of ramifications from that. The first is that along with everyone else, mortgage lenders and mortgage brokers and lawyers are all working from home. And so the, their ability to process mortgage applications has been really hard hit. You know, if you imagine that you're an underwriter sitting in a mortgage lender, you might have four screens in front of you and access to all of these systems to look at people's bank statements, their income, their, you know, interfacing with their employment, PAYE systems. You don't have any of that at home. So the time it's taking to just go through the paperwork is much, much higher. So on top of this flood of people wanting a mortgage and already being in the process of having applied for a mortgage, but having been put on hold, you then have that exacerbated by everyone working from home and everything taking five times as long. So normally a house purchase from deciding I'm going to do this, putting in an offer to actually moving in to the home takes three months in a healthy market which is not particularly healthy let's be honest yeah but now it's taking five six months so a lot of people are stressing out that they're going to miss the stamp duty holiday 
uh, which ends at the end of March next year. And that's causing even more froth. And then there's another sort of layer to this, which is because there's so much interest in property, asking prices are going through the roof. We've seen record highs. Right move data out for, for last month, I think, showed a, a 7% uptick year on year, which is mad considering we're in the deepest recession that the UK has seen in 300 years. That's crazy. And there's been a lot of warnings, I think, given out by experts and economists um, saying, you know, you're not technically saving any money if you're buying a property that's valued at 500,000, saving 15,000 pounds on your stamp duty holiday. But actually, in 12 months, your property that you bought is not going to be worth 500,000 pounds. It's going to be worth 450 because actually, this is a kind of a false mini boom that's going on as a result of that stamp duty holiday policy. And it's not sustainable, which, of course, all of that is hugely complicated and confusing. And this, let's not forget, you know, buying a house is the biggest financial commitment that most people make in their entire lives. And you don't want to get it wrong. You don't so, want to be rushed into this exactly, decision, you I guess. Exactly. And, and I think a lot of people are feeling like that. They're like, do I do this now? Should I, should I wait? Will house prices fall? Because people are saying that maybe it's better to wait until the stamp duty holiday is over, but then we don't know what the government's going to do. Maybe they'll extend it. Do you think they're going to extend the stamp duty holiday? I personally don't, but then trying to predict anything. <laughs> so In full, the current conditions. <laughs> Um, because, you know, I wouldn't have said half the things that have happened in the past 12 months would have happened. I think it would be a mistake if they did, because ultimately what you're doing is kicking this can down the road and that all that uncertainty just is sustained for even longer. And actually what we need is to see longer term policies designed to support a healthy housing market put into place that are not going to encourage this kind of like frenzied sort of knee-jerk reaction, but actually going to facilitate the right people who can afford it getting onto the housing ladder in a way that works for them. Yeah. If indeed that's the right course of action. So personally I wouldn't, but that doesn't mean that they won't. Okay. And you think so do you think then people are paying like a, a small premium at the moment on or like an so, inflated price? I think it totally depends on the property and the location. And it's so easy to think of property prices rising and falling because the way that the media talks about them is we talk about averages, we talk about house price indices. That's just meaningless. It's statistics. It really depends on where you are and what you're doing. So if you're buying a two bed flat in a city center and you know that you need to work there and that lots of other people are going to need to work there, then probably you're a bit more insulated unless there's loads of two-bedroom flats and there are half of them are empty, in which case you're not. And those, those ones are more vulnerable to seeing their value fall. The key is one of my bosses from 15 years ago, he said to me, he was a housing market guru called John Rigglesworth back in the day. And he said to me, something which has stuck with me. He said, buying a house is about nesting, not investing. And it is such, I love that. such an important thing to remember that you're not 
putting your money into something because it's going to go up in value. You were buying somewhere to live in and create a home in. And the questions that are really important to ask yourself are, do I want to live here? Can I see myself living here for the next five years? If I can see myself living here for only 18 months, I probably shouldn't buy it because the cost of buying and moving in and moving out and selling, probably that's going to outweigh any money that I'll make in such a short period of time, if you even do. The questions that you need to ask are, is this a place I want to be? Is it going to suit my needs in terms of, you know, enough space for my possibly growing family? You know, accessibility, is it close to family? Have I got childcare? Are there schools nearby that I like? Can I travel? Is it well connected? All of those things matter so much more than our house prices going up and down. The chances are, if it works for you and you want to buy it, and there's lots of people who are interested in buying it because of the same reasons, then it's a good investment. And that's just a, that's like a kind of byproduct of making the right decision about where you want to live. So yeah, I really can't encourage people strongly enough to try and try to put aside that kind of mindset of, I'm going to put all my money into a house because it's going to make me a millionaire. That just isn't true anymore. It's a myth that came from rapid house price appreciation through the 1980s and 90s and the early 2000s. We just haven't seen growth like that since then. And the averages, they don't mean anything. I mean, I've seen like a lot of people who are now more inclined to to pick maybe a house in the in the countryside uh, because of COVID and, and now we've been told that there can be like you know more pandemics in the future. Do you think like the most sought after locations are, are sort of changing and now people want to you know leave big cities and live yeah. in the countryside? I mean, I think to put this into perspective, I think that this is pretty anecdotal. At the moment, I wouldn't say that there is overwhelming evidence for this yet. That doesn't mean it won't come out later, but all of the data that you get on the property market has a huge lag. I mean, three, four months. So we only went into the lockdown, what, seven months ago? The first one. And no one did anything for three months. So that's only four months since we've actually got data. And that data is definitely not going to be normal data you know it's it's yeah. abnormal because of the circumstances so i don't think that we can say definitively that's what people are doing i think anecdotally when you have conversations with people lots of people are saying you know what i can work remotely i don't have to commute not having to get on the train every morning and stand surrounded by people that's really nice you know lots of offices are doing kind of rotational working in the office a couple of days a week, working from home, the rest of it. So I think a lot of people are reassessing their kind of work-life balance. And that is for sure prompting people to consider where they live. That then brings into, I mean, it kind of brings it back to the point I was making about, you know, when you're looking at buying a house or moving house, even renting, you want to be asking yourself, does this home suit my needs? And I think The thing here is that those needs might have changed slightly because of lockdown and because of the pandemic. I think one of the things that didn't really affect the value of the property 12 months ago was whether or not you had fiber broadband to your premises. 
now that is going to mm. be key. I mean, yeah. for so many people, we'll just be like, you know, they're kind of <laughs> freezing on Zoom. Can I, I can't hear you. I can't hear. Can you hear me? That so kind of, it's so annoying how much productivity in the economy is wasted on hung internet connect- connections. So that kind of thing, I think, is is actually going to be way more relevant in future. But then you factor that in in cities most cities have got really good fiber connections rural areas do not and so if you're thinking oh i'm going to move to the country and work remotely from home and it's going to be great and then like idyllic change in my lifestyle well maybe you actually can't because your internet's not going to be enough you know stable enough to support that so i think that these are new considerations that people are having to think about when they're when they're making those moves that said I would say that there is early evidence that city centre rents certainly are falling and that is driven by people not needing to be in city centres to work anymore. And when you're renting, you can see the kind of reaction in the rental market much faster than you do in the in the purchase market because, you know, contracts, you can end it with a month's notice and start with an aunt's notice, whereas in you know buying a house takes a lot longer. So rents in London particularly have dropped, but rents elsewhere in the country and certainly outside of city centres have been going up. So I think that does give you a sort of an insight into that migration, if you like, of people. Yeah. Thank you. Can I now ask you uh, to summarize for us the house buying process? <laughs> Because wow. be, I'm sure there's lots of first time buyers and, and that will need a mortgage. So maybe like a quick step by step of, you know, how to, you know, prepare yourself and what are the, you know, what are you going to have to do basically to, to get your mortgage and to, to buy your first property? Sure. It's not the easiest thing to do. And I think that that's because there is no best way to do it. And also where you start this journey is one of those sort of slightly contentious issues. I would argue that you start that journey when you decide, I would like to buy a house. And the first thing you need to do is save a deposit. So finding the right home for that money and working out what you can save each month and how long you think it's going to take you to save up enough for a deposit to enable you to actually start looking for a property. Those are all things that are going to affect where you save into. There are government schemes, including the Lifetime ISA, which there are a number of different, quite a limited number of cash Lifetime ISAs where you can put the money in and you'll get a bonus from the government depending on how much you pay in. There are restrictions on how you use that money when you take it out. You have to put it towards a house or else keep it in and use it towards your retirement. More on that, I'm sure, <laughs> if people <Yeah>. Google <laughs> rather than going into the complexity of that. But it's great. You know, if you are saving for a deposit, I would highly recommend looking at the lifetime ISA if you're sure that's what you're going to use the money for. Yeah, I personally uh, have one too. And I, I know I'm going to use it for retirement. Uh, I just yeah. wanted to benefit from, you know, the, this top up the from, from the government. So And they're really generous. Yeah, and they're generous. So it's like you can take the money out. It's there either to buy your first property or, or you keep it for retirement. Exactly. And once you've sort of decided if you want to do that, which is restrictive in itself, then you have the option of whether or not you keep that money in cash. If you think it's going to take you a couple of years to save up your whole deposit, you probably do want to keep it in cash. If you think it's going to take you five years to save, you might think about investing some of it because it's likely that over a slightly more medium to longer term, you might see the effect of 
dividend payments and rising share prices actually help to kind of boost the amount that you've saved. That is not a given by any stretch of the imagination, though. So it's a risk that you're taking and time frame is, is really critical when you're considering whether or not to do that. But that's a, it's a real alternative because, I mean, now look at the, you know, the, the interest rates on, on savings. Yeah, They're absolutely. Really, really crap. So, you know, you keep this, this big pot of money for your house deposit yeah. and then you're yielding what? Less than zero point. Well, less than inflation. <laughs> so actually yeah. what you're saving today is going to be worth less in the future. It's really depressing. So yeah, it's an argument for investing it, but you do need to think about when you're going to need access to that yeah. money because stock markets at the moment particularly are really volatile so you know if you're going to need it in six months time probably don't no. put it in the stock market yeah <laughs> um, and then I would say that there are there are other things that you can do before you even start looking for properties one of those things is making sure that you've got a good credit record while it's not a good idea to get a credit card and spend on it willy-nilly and not think about how you're going to pay it off it is a good idea to establish a precedent in your ability to spend on a credit card and then make the full repayment every month reliably. That will put you in a really good position when a mortgage lender comes to look at your credit file. They'll see, oh, this person's got a track record of paying back debt regularly and reliably. So that's definitely another thing that you can do early on in the process. A third thing is making sure that you're registered on the electoral roll, which as part of a democracy, most people ought to be anyway. But I know lots of people sort of forget, especially if they're renting, they might just, you know, not see the letter come through the door. But that's really important because it establishes you as resident. And that's one of the things that mortgage lenders are going to look at. So kind of sorting out your administrative life. Those are things that put you in a good position up front before you get there. Fast forward, you've saved your deposit and you are now in a position where you think, okay, you know, I've got 10%, let's say, to put in. At that point, most people will use a mortgage calculator online, just put in some basic information about what they earn, any kind of fixed costs that they have going out, for example, things like nursery school fees or childcare or you know, if you've got car loan payments that you need to make every month, those sorts of things will impact how much you can borrow. And most of the calculators out there will give you a fairly good idea of what you would be eligible for. And then that plus your deposit is going to tell you how much money you've got to spend on a, on a place. Some people do the mortgage application at that point, and they'll get a decision in principle. So it's a kind of preliminary approval from your lender like yeah we're fine with you we're happy with you we'll lend to you just go off and find the house and then we'll put you through the kind of formal process but you don't have to do that you can look at properties before then one thing to factor in when you're looking at what you can afford is that you are going to have to pay legal fees and valuation fees a lot of mortgage deals come with a fee as well as the kind of interest rate that you pay monthly there's moving costs And when you've been renting, you don't realize that as a homeowner, there are an awful lot of maintenance costs as well. So it's really important that you have built in a financial buffer for things like fixing leaks and replacing boilers and relining window seals and, you know, all of the, all of the above. 
<laughs> exactly. You know, all these questions you usually call your landlord and they will exactly. have to fix it in six months time then yeah for you so you have to do it and pay for it exactly so having that kind of safety net financial safety net in place is also important so even if you've got your deposit you need a little bit of extra cash probably quite a lot of extra cash in there in the bank just to facilitate a move and to see you through getting the house in order then you find the house, you put an offer in. Most people at the moment are chancing their luck with an offer a bit under asking price. I think because of these kind of longer term worries, most people I talk to, estate agents I talk to are saying that buyers are putting in roughly between 10 and 5% under the asking price. Okay. And chances are that's probably acceptable to people who want to move. It's always worth a negotiation, I would say. Once you've got a property sale agreed, then you need to go back to the mortgage side of the, the equation. So you can go straight to your lender. So say you've got a current account with First Direct, you might want to call them up and see what mortgage offerings they've got. Generally, though, it's a good idea to talk to a mortgage broker who will have access to a lot of mortgage lenders, many of which are not available direct to buyers. So, and especially if you're, if you have an income situation, which is slightly abnormal, by which I don't mean abnormal at all, but in the eyes of lenders, anything that's not full-time employment, PAYE is abnormal. So if you're self-employed, if you have more than one source of income, if you get paid a basic salary plus bonuses, those are all considered a bit weird and wonderful, which is <laughs> unreal in today's economy. <laughs> But a mortgage broker is going to be an absolute lifeline for you if, the, if your income falls into that bracket. So they'll have access to the lenders that are specialized in that kind of stuff. Equally, I would say, I mean, a lot of people have had a really tricky financial year this year. And if you've missed any payments on credit cards or you've had to have a payment holiday, for example, a mortgage broker is going to be really helpful in that scenario because they'll be able to dig out the specialist lenders who are prepared to look at scenarios and take a view based on, you know, okay, well, we can see that you got put on furlough then and we can see oh, that you're now not on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that you missed one payment, but you've not missed a payment five years previous to that. Yep. And you're now back in full-time employment and your affordability is great. But if you were to apply to a mainstream high street bank with that on your credit record, you might find that it's just a, you know, blanket note you don't fit the criteria. So I would say mortgage broker is going to be really valuable. They'll go through the affordability with you. They'll look at your income, your expenses, your kind of your timeline. If you are just married and you want to, or not just married or whatever, you're looking at having children in the next five years and you're buying a one bed flat, they might say, I think you should probably get a two year fixed rate mortgage because you don't know whether or not a growing family is going to fit in this property. So you might need to move. But on the other hand, if you're buying your forever home, then there are some amazing longer term fixed rate deals. I mean, I was looking earlier and I found a five-year fixed rate for someone with a 10% deposit that was cheaper than a two-year fixed rate. Wow. Yeah. Which is just, wow. I mean, that's yep. bananas. That's, that's the economy gone mad. 
What is um, the rate? What are what are these? Yeah, so, type of rate so a two-year fixed rate at 90% LTV, which is if you've got 10% deposit to put in, at the moment, the best buy is 3.64% from Virgin Money. And it's got a £745 fee, which you can either pay up front in cash or you can add to your loan. But be aware that if you do that, then you're paying interest on it for the lifetime of the loan, which will add up. And then the five-year fix at 90%, is 3.59, which is a full 0.05% cheaper. That one also has a smaller fee of £609, and that's from Bank of Ireland. Where do you look for the best rates? On This Is Money, if you go, we have a drop-down menu at the top mm-hmm. of our website, which has an option that says, I want to find a cheaper mortgage. And if you click okay. onto that, you'll be taken to our partner page, and you can put in your details of like how much you want to spend on the property, how much you want to borrow and you can set different kind of parameters and it'll spit out all here at the best buy i'll include the link in the in the notes of the podcast super useful so talking about average mortgage rates they've been rising actually over the past three months and i mean the reasons i think is that you know lenders want to cover themselves because they're potentially taking more risk uh, lending money to people who are trying to keep up with you know current job conditions maybe earning less but also, you know, unclear economic outlook. Where Where is this going? I feel that's also why people are trying to secure a deal now, you know. <laughs> it's like yeah. you know, there's this time duty holiday, uh, our mortgage rates are going up. What, what should we expect? I just can't answer that question because everything is such a movable feast at the moment. And I think though there are a couple of things just to bear in mind. One, yes, mortgage rates on residential mortgages are going up and have been going up for the past four months. But this is by either single or possibly double digit basis points. So we are talking like 0.5%, if that, and often a lot less than that. So in terms of how much extra you're going to be paying on your mortgage each month, the difference is pence unless you're taking an enormous mortgage, in which case it's going to be pounds, but it's still not going to be enormous because rates are so low at the moment because of the bank base rate being at 0.1%. That is really critical as well. I think long-term mortgage rates generally follow the same path as the bank base rate, which is set by the Bank of England. And they make the decision on what to do with that based on the kind of health of the wider economy in the UK, but also internationally. And they've been talking about negative interest rates. There is just no way that they are going to shock the UK economy by raising the base rate anytime soon. Just isn't going to happen. And so it's highly unlikely that mortgage rates are going to diverge enormously from the base rate. They might you know, they'll fluctuate. But I think it's really important to sort of consider why lenders price the way that they price. They've got annual targets that they're trying to meet. They've got funding requirements. They may have a lot of funding that they've got to get out of the door, in which case they might price cheaply. They might have no funding, in which case they're going to price expensively. At the moment, what we're seeing is, as you pointed out, some fear about the future of house prices. We have just saw unemployment statistics out this morning showing a really steep uptick in the number of redundancies that's going to have a long-term impact on the rest of the economy. And I think that as a result, lenders are they're feeling nervous and they're just being cautious about what kind of 
loans they say yes to. And that's probably going to continue for the next 12 months. But I don't think it means that there'll be no mortgages available or that they'll get really expensive. I think fundamentally, I would just bring it back to that. Is this a property that I want to live in? Is it going to be long term? Over the next five to seven years, am I going to be happy living there? And does the extra £15 a month that I'm going to end up spending if I buy it now or in nine months really make a difference to me in terms of buying this house or a different house? Because I think that's what we're talking about here. And I think it's it's tempting to make it seem like a huge decision. But actually, the decision is, am I going to be happy here in the medium term to yeah. long term? And that's that's the one that you've got to be comfortable with. And the rest will fall into place. Yeah. Going back to basics and then, you know, making sure you understand the, the yeah. current conditions, but really not rushing into a purchase. I think yeah. that's really the main message. What if you already have a mortgage and you manage to, I mean, a lot of people have actually managed to save money during lockdown. We've seen that because people are opening investment accounts. So they have some spare cash. Should you or what are maybe the pros and cons of overpaying your mortgage versus potentially, you know, investing this extra money into something else? I would say you need to look at the terms of your actual mortgage. So most deals put a limit on how much you can overpay. Usually it's 10% of the outstanding mortgage balance every year that you can pay without being charged a kind of penalty fee. It varies though. If you happen to be on a variable, lifetime variable rate, it's likely that you don't have any restrictions. So you could overpay as much as you wanted. In terms of whether or not you should invest or overpay on your mortgage, you could do sums about this till the cows come home and you still won't know what will be the best thing to do until after it happens. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But what I would say is that mortgage debt at the moment is so cheap. It is so cheap. It's never been this cheap, particularly if you're on a good deal as opposed to being on a standard variable rate, which is the kind of default rate that you fall onto if you don't remortgage at the end of your deal. So I think it's more important that people who have a mortgage make sure that they have remortgaged to a good deal so that they're paying less. And then there's no right or wrong to this. But at the moment, if you say you're paying one and a half percent on your mortgage, but the average annual return on from a stock market, you'll know this better than me at the moment, is likely to be higher than that potentially, but it might not be. And you just don't know until the end of that year, then you could say that it would make sense to invest that money. Ultimately, it's not the return that should make sort of decide that choice for you. It's what do you need the money for and when do you need it? And do you need ready access to it? And all of those sorts of questions are much more important than can I make 1% more on this by doing X than Y, I think. And also keeping this maybe like a a bigger cash buffer at the moment because, you know, who Mm. knows what's going to happen. So in sort of an emergency fund or whatever savings and and keep some money in cash, I think is so important. Yeah, there's offset mortgages are actually a really good kind of compromise when it comes to that, which is essentially you you have a mortgage with one bank and they'll charge you an interest rate of, let's say, for argument's sake, 2%. And then with the same bank, you can also hold all your cash savings and they'll link your cash savings with your mortgage. And say you've got a really big cash balance and they would be paying you, I don't know, half a percent on on that cash balance. If you are earning that, you have it knocked off your mortgage. So 
basically you don't earn any interest on your savings, but you pay less interest on your mortgage. So instead of the 2% mortgage, you would take that half percent off and you'd be paying 1.5%, which makes your debt cheaper, but it doesn't tie up your cash in case you need it. It yeah. just means that your mortgage rate will go back up if you do need access to that cash. But that's, that is definitely a, a popular, probably less known about way to get around that, that scenario. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Sarah, I have two questions that are more specific maybe to lockdown uh, mm-hmm. or like to, you, you know, maybe this, yeah, like the current pandemic is the first one, what happens to your mortgage repayments if and when you lose your job or you've been on furlough and you're actually uh, struggling? And maybe you can talk about the, you know, the payment holidays, mortgage payment holidays. And also the second one is what if, what can you do if you're struggling to actually pay your rent at the moment? Okay, so mortgages first, and this is going to, you know, millions of people are in this position and have been in this position. So when lockdown was first announced, the government said to mortgage lenders, you need to offer people penalty-free mortgage payment holidays. So what that means is you just call up your lender and say, I need a break. Can I not pay my mortgage for three months, please? And then I'll start paying again once I've sorted out my cash flow scenario which is fine and has given lots of people breathing space. What I would say is that it is not a holiday. It is really misleading to label it a holiday. What you are doing when you agree to take a payment holiday is agreeing to fall behind on your payments. So you're in arrears. That's going to cost you money over the long term, whether or not the government policy of not that not impacting, in quotes, your credit score. It's kind of irrelevant because it is an expensive way to cope in the short term, there are alternatives. So just to sort of recap on the policy, essentially mortgage payment holidays, the penalty-free ones were supposed to end at the end of last month, although you could apply for a three-month one up until the end of October. They've extended that through to March. I think it's March, it might be January. You need to check that. That means that you can apply if you need one now um, all the way through till the end of that period. However, if it's possible, I think everybody, mortgage lender, mortgage broker, and I would all say it is much better to talk to your lender and pay what you can. So there are lots of different ways that you can do that. You can agree a lower payment for a bit with them, in which case you're accruing less interest over the long term. So you're paying back less. You could switch either temporarily or longer term temporarily from a repayment mortgage where you pay back some of the capital and the interest each month to just paying the interest just to tide you over. That means your debt's not getting any bigger, but you're still, you're not going into arrears and you're not racking up any more debt. You could also remortgage, depends on where you are and whether or not you're liable to pay early repayment charges, but you could remortgage to a different deal that might be on a lower rate. Or for example, let's say you've got 22 years on your mortgage term because you bought three years ago and you took a 25-year term, you could go back to your lender and say, actually, can I remortgage, but can we put it onto a 35-year term? And that gives you much longer to repay the same amount of debt, which means that your monthly payments will be lower. Bear in mind with that option, you're paying interest over a longer period of time, so you will pay more back overall. However, it might be something that you want to do for the next two years. And then you could shorten the term if you are in a more secure position with your income further down the line. The best thing to do in trying to decide what approach to take is to talk to a mortgage broker. 
who will lay out all of the different options available from your lender and other lenders and will help you to understand the implications of each of those. I think actually I just checked and you're right, it's uh, January. January, yeah. 2021, yeah. Some of the things are going to March. Furlough is going to March, but... Exactly, yeah. Probably uh, change these again. things are changing all the time, so... Exactly. <laughs> um, and then for renters, the key thing when you're having problems with money is not to bury your head in the sand. Let's be honest, money, and particularly debt is a social taboo. Nobody likes saying, I can't afford to do this. You know, it really is. It's kind of the last taboo in society. But if this year has shown us anything, it is that money problems are ubiquitous across society, regardless of who you're employed by and how much money you make and where your children are at school. Everybody is suffering this year. There is nothing to be embarrassed about. If you are having problems paying your rent because you've been furloughed and you're not earning as much or you're self-employed and you've seen your income fall or you've lost your job. One of my really close friends just got made redundant yesterday and he's worrying like you would that is he going to be able to pay his rent? Is he going to be able to reapply for a different job at his company? Or, you know, all of these things are big and scary and horrible individuals are having to go through it the first thing that you should do in that situation is call your landlord and say this has happened to me I am worried I don't know what the outcome is going to be yet but I want you to have as much notice as possible and depending on who your landlord is and what their financial situation is they may be able to help you so that could look like them giving you a break on rent. They could negotiate down and say, right, pay 75% of your rent for the next three months and let's review it in three months. You might have got a new job by then. We'll come back to that later on. It's going to be really dependent on on them and what their scenario and circumstance is. So if they've got a mortgage to meet, they're probably going to have less wriggle room to be flexible with you, but it's still better to talk to them because they can go to their lender and say, look, I need to negotiate my mortgage payments down because my tenant is having problems. And, you know, all lenders are under enormous pressure from the government and the Bank of England and the Financial Conduct Authority to just be as patient as possible, because clearly none of this is anybody's fault. Um, And hopefully it's not permanent. So, yeah, I would say there's no categorical, you do this in this scenario, but if you're struggling or you're worried that you might struggle, pick up the phone, talk to your landlord and see what can be done yeah. in that scenario. So you might find that people are more flexible than you worry they might be. No, exactly. So that's why it's important to talk about money actually and reach out to these people. Thank you so much, Shara. It's been so, so useful. Uh, I have some quick fire questions for you. Can I ask you, what is your top financial goal at the moment? Oh, at the moment, do my tax return? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not very exciting. (laughs) Not very exciting, but it has to be done. No, but it's really critical, really important. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say that's probably my top one right now. Okay. And what's the best financial decision you've ever made? Paying off my credit card debt. Yeah, well done. And the worst financial decision? Spending loads of money on my credit card (laughs) and not paying it off every month. Definitely. That's that's making mistakes. That's just a way to learn. What is financial independence for you? Having enough money in the bank that I don't need to worry if something unexpected happens, I think. It's just having the freedom not to be stressed all the time. 
yeah. about money. And I think that's a real luxury. I don't think a lot of people have that, to be honest, no matter how rich they are, because the more you make, the more you spend. Yeah. I've got friends who earn lots and lots and lots of money being bankers and are still incredibly worried about their children and their education and whether or not they're going to be able to continue to keep them in schools that they've got all their friends at and keep that paying. kind of thing. Yeah. So all relative. Yeah. And on a slightly lighter note, what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? <laughs> at the moment, books. During a pandemic. Audio books. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably what I spend most money on at the moment. Um, but I have, I'm a terrible online shopper. I'm like an sh online shopping addict. TK Maxx. Oh, <laughs> it makes so much money out of me. <laughs> Your dopamine uh, hit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, you've got to take it where you can right now, don't you? That's fine. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, Sarah, what, can I ask you just what are you working on at the moment? What are your, you know, next challenges or what are you, you know, the, the main topics at work? Maybe what are, what are you working on? So we're looking at a story at the moment, which is the kind of the discrepancy or the gap between what estate agents are valuing properties at and what mortgage lenders are valuing them at. There's a That's gap. Interesting. Um, so estate agents are like, okay, I can definitely sell the property for this. Buyers are saying, I want to buy at this, this price. That's fine. They agree it. They go through the mortgage application process and then the mortgage valuation comes back at less. Well, wow. And so suddenly their temp, their, or their 15% deposit is actually only 10%. That is an increasing problem in the market right now. So we're looking at, at that. It's complicated to do with risk and insurance and everyone being worried and not knowing what's going to happen, sort of playing it safe. But that's causing quite a lot of gridlock in the market right now. I'm also looking at green money. So greener finance is like a big kind of movement that is really gathering pace this year. I'm hugely committed to it and I've done a lot of work like trying to build up guides for people who want to make all of their personal finance a bit greener. But looking at the greenwash, whose environmental claims are credible and whose are maybe not, um, that's a big topic for me at the moment. I think the same thing is true on the kind of social responsibility front. Yeah, and more and more people want to invest. I mean, I, I'm covering more the investing side of it, but it's, you know, people want to yeah. invest in line with their values and they realize their money has actually some power. But yeah. it's really hard when you want to start investing, you know, in line with CSG or SRI or impact investing. I mean, where do you start? Maybe your pension is a good way, is a good place, but... Yeah, but then if you have a company pension, it's very you're limited in what you can yes. put it into if you want to benefit from your company contributions, which are really valuable. So you wouldn't want to forego those. But I'm actually, I'm doing a piece on ESG at the moment, which is they've seen record, ESG funds have seen record inflows over the past nine months. And there are some people who are saying, mm, if other funds or other sectors had seen that much money go in that fast, there would be a question about whether or not they're overvalued. You know, where do you find value? Because um, as you say, I think this year is lots of investors have really woken up to that kind of ethical good. consideration. It's good. So yeah, I think that's definitely going to be a big yeah. subject focus. Great. Thank you so much, Sarah. Where can we find you? 
Twitter, yes. I'm I'm generally hopeless at social media, but please get in touch and I will do my very best to come back to you. Um, my Twitter handle is at Sarah Davidson and that's Sarah with an H. And I do tweet stories and, and I definitely look sometimes at it. But if you want to get in touch with me, I will get an alert. So I'll make an effort to come back to you. Perfect. Sarah, thank you so much. And yeah, I hope to see you soon. At a Likewise. Event, maybe. Thank you very much. Yeah. That will be lovely as soon as we're allowed. <laughs> See you soon. See you Bye. soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on Vespot.com. Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at Vespot.com. Thank you. Speak to you soon.